welcome to the Redevelopment Institute podcast, where we look at how to rebuild America through the promotion of best practices, education, and technical assistance in creating communities and neighborhoods that are both environmentally and economically sustainable. Hello, everyone. This is Leslie Parrish, and I'll be your host for today's Redevelopment Institute podcast. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined by Colleen Kokus, who's an Executive Vice President at Environmental Liability Transfer, or ELT. ELT is a comprehensive liability assumption company with clients across North America. In her work there, Colleen works with government agencies, property owners, and environmental attorneys to create new business opportunities in contaminated property acquisition. More broadly though, Colleen's career in site remediation spans over three decades, where she's been leading project management, cleanup negotiations, funding, liability protection, cost recovery, and brownfield redevelopment, including past work at the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. So a warm welcome to you, Colleen. Welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks, Leslie, for having me. Absolutely. You know, one question I have for you is, how did you initially get into the brownfield redevelopment industry? Was this kind of a natural progression in your career, or did it happen by some sort of happy accident? Yeah, so it, <laughs> it really is a tale of unintended consequences during my career at New Jersey DEP. As you had mentioned, a lot of my early work was in um, starting off as a project manager on Superfund or Recre sites, and then that kind of evolved into doing more enforcement, cost recovery, litigation support. And one day my director came to me and, and basically said, how would you like to switch positions with someone and manage our really was environmental claims, sort of almost like an insurance program, as well as some of our very, very new cleanup programs. We had a new underground storage tank fund. We had a new cleanup grant fund. And so I was very, very reluctant. And my director said, I think, I think this is going to be a good move for you. And so I did it. And anyone that's been involved in brownfield redevelopment knows that when you understand the money, the various sources that can be leveraged and combined on top of each other, that that's a big part of a successful brownfield project. So that's really how it started. And as anyone in this business knows, when you have a brownfield project and you can see where the old adage of time is money mm -hmm. and you see changes in 18 months, 24 months where not only is the investigation completed, but oftentimes the cleanup is very well underway so that vertical development can start. You know, that is, in my world, instant gratification. And so you can see communities become transformed. You can see derelict properties start having a productive reuse in a community. 
So it was by chance that I got started, but it was by the sheer gratification in the work and the changes that you really saw from an environmental standpoint, as well as a community impact that really kept me engaged all these years. That's great. And yeah, I can, I can imagine it's so rewarding to see whole communities transformed as, as a result of your work in the field. And wondering if we could dig a little deeper on that. And maybe you could tell us about a couple interesting projects that you've been a part of. Um, Maybe one from your past that's fully completed now, and maybe one that is more recent or, or maybe even in progress. Sure. So I'm not sure how many listeners out there remember the first Brownfield solicitation for, for EPA Brownfield grants. So the legislation was signed, I believe, in 2001. And by 2002, they had their first Brownfield grant solicitation. At the same time, New Jersey DEP's Brownfield program was just getting off the ground. So I was one of the members who helped to form that new Brownfield office. And we were, I think, the first program in the nation to do an area-wide approach. So something that's got a lot more history behind it now, but in those days, you know, nobody was looking at area-wide. So one of our area-wide communities was in Camden, and it was an area that it was on the waterfront, community never really got to take advantage of that waterfront as well as it was it was a very established neighborhood with high ownership and a community that really wanted to see real change and they had a number of brownfields that were standing in the way of that so we applied for an EPA assessment grant And we were awarded a $200,000 grant. We worked with EPA to do some assessment. We actually found a chlorinated solvent plume on the site. And what was happening at the same time was the Kroc Foundation was looking for various sites around the country where they could provide a pretty big grant to a community to construct a recreation center. And Camden was one of them. Um, It actually went to the Salvation Army, this grant, to build this recreation center. So those two things are happening simultaneously, and we're working with the city of Camden, we're working with the Salvation Army, we're working with the community And rest assured, where they wanted to site the recreation center was smack dab on top of that solvented, uh, that chlorinated solvent. Mm. So we worked with them, you know, and of course, now you're working with their planners and their architects about where else can we site this building. So fast forward about, oh, I want to say maybe 2012. 2013, that project has its topping off ceremony where they're actually putting 
the last piece of the highest steel on the building. And so at that time, I had moved on from the Brownfield program. But still, these projects, I used to say, we want them to succeed almost as much as the community does. I mean, that's how invested we become in these area-wide projects. And then the Croc Center opened up, again, I'm going to say approximately, you know, maybe 2015. And slow and steady wins the race, you know, with some of these brownfield projects. Started with that EPA brownfield assessment grant. There were other grants that DEP had awarded along the way, but that's probably a real highlight of my career, despite, you know, not being the person involved all along, but still a real game changer for that community in Camden. So in my current role at Environmental Liability Transfer, we actually have a project. It is a former coal fire power plant. It was New England's largest coal-fired power plant, and it shut down in 2017. We acquired it in 2018. We started the demolition of the site. Again, with these projects, you're always looking at what's happening in the market around you. And at this same time, Massachusetts is very much investing in offshore wind. They're working with the federal government to set up where it's going to be off-site. They're doing the various studies that need to be done. They are working on legislation to support that offshore wind. So we knew, given the assets at the site, it was over 300 acres. It was on the water. It was, I'll say, relatively close to where the offshore wind turbines were going to be located. It had a deep water port. So we knew that this could tie in nicely, this site, the redevelopment of it, could tie in nicely to what was going on with offshore wind. So today, we actually have our deep water port that has been operating for about two years. It can receive ocean-going vessels. We have entered into an agreement with an Italian company called Prismium. They are going to manufacture the underground cables on our site. I think they are going to be either leasing or purchasing a significant portion of that site for that. We are going to have a large battery storage operation happening on the site. And then there will be in works with one of the higher education institutions there. We are going to have an educational aspect, whether it's a training center, an educational center at the site as well. Oh, interesting. Those operations still won't occupy the entire site. So again, those are things that are unraveling right now. And so we will continue to look at what other redevelopment projects or operations can we bring to this site. So that's what's happening as we speak. 
That's great. Yeah, as you're telling about those two projects, you know, some common threads that that you referred to earlier, you know, all the different types of funding sources that you're leveraging, the long journey involved that's still ongoing in, in that one case, but also just all the different players involved. I mean, different government entities, funding sources, institutions. I mean, there's just so many facets to the redevelopment of sites, especially the complex ones that you've been dealing with. I'm wondering, could you talk a bit more about how you work with all those different types of players that are involved in these projects? Sure. As I've gone through my career and my career development, it was with the the understanding that there are a lot of different stakeholders. There are a lot of different areas of expertise that are brought to the table, whether it's, you know, generally we think of in, in our world of the environmental piece, you know, there's the real estate piece. There is the risk management piece. There is the financial piece. There is the marketing piece. There are so many different aspects. My, my personal approach was the more I knew about how those pieces worked and at a granular level, how they fit in to the project, the better off I was. So I continue to this day to pick people's brains I think those of us in the industry find that people are very willing to share what they know and help you grow in your career path. That's what I have found across the different disciplines. And even today, my work is really more on the real estate end than the environmental end. I still have my government and my, they, they affectionately call me their, the regulator. So <laughs> I have, you know, those relationships and understand government and how government works. And I bring that to the table at ELT. But what they continue to share with me is the real estate aspects and all and understanding the real estate that I really didn't have at any level of detail, you know, when I was at, uh, in my various roles at DEP. Mm -hmm. When I was at DEP, though, it became clear I'd run into other people in the profession in environmental consulting and realized that they didn't understand the other pieces to making a successful brownfield project. So for example, if you're a, I'll say entry level, or you're new in the consult environmental consulting world, and you're out in the field every day, and you're doing, you know, field tech kind of work, you may not be exposed to the legal issues. You may not be exposed to de-risking a site through insurance products. So I was a co-founder of an organization about 12 years ago. It's the Brownfield Coalition of the Northeast. And it is a nonprofit organization designed to do just that, 
to educate people on brownfields. And it could be any aspect of brownfields. Again, going back to something that has served me well, which is the more you understand about how you fit in to the overall process, I think the more valuable you can be in your role on that project. That makes total sense to me, really having that full landscape and context to better navigate those really complex projects. You know, switching gears a little bit, um, since you are on more of the kind of commercial and industrial side of brownfield redevelopment, I perceive that as still really being a male-dominated field. And I'm wondering how you've been navigating that reality in the, in the decades that you've been working in the industry. Sure, sure. You know, for a very long time, I've often said, you know, sitting around a table of 10 people, I was often the only woman. And I still get the, you know, I told our CEO not too long ago that in trying to schedule a a conference call through, you know, whether it was Teams or Zoom or, you know, the person we were trying to do the call with, when he had to reschedule, his assistant reached out to me to say, hey, so-and-so can't make it on this date. Can you give us new dates? Now, I had not been involved at all with the scheduling of that meeting. Our CEO had. Hmm. But <laughs> having been in this world, this kind of business long enough, I know she thought I was his administrative assistant. Despite the fact that, you know, my signature block says Colleen Cocos, executive vice president. So <laughs> it, it, it happens, that kind of stuff, you know, it, it just rolls off my back. But being the only woman in the room or on the call, one advantage is I never have to say who's speaking or, you know, that I'm Colleen Cocos. I mean, it, it's obvious, you know. <laughs> so, but the, but the other thing is, I feel like whatever the subject matter is, or if it's a specific project that we're working on, I always feel like I need to go above and beyond and know the subject matter to the best of my ability, in and out, forwards and back, so as not to be perceived as the inexperienced woman in the room. Mm -hmm. So again, that's my approach. Um, feeling that uh, sometimes you almost have to be over prepared, but it, it still is very much, as you mentioned, a uh, male dominated world. I just was out at a site last week. And when I was coordinating this site visit, the broker said to me, now we're going to, we're going to go into the facility but you're going to have to go in through the men's locker room. You know, like <laughs> there was not even any, you know, it, it, there must not have ever been women, you know, mm -hmm. at this industrial site. I mean, that's how male dominated some of the work is. Now, having said that, I am seeing more and more women brokers, but, you know, still very much a, a male dominated world. I'm curious, um, you know, even beyond the issue of, of gender, you know, how have you seen the field evolve over your career? And, and are you seeing kind of inklings of, of future changes maybe, maybe on the horizon for the industry? 
Sure. I think that there have been great strides uh, from where we've started. And again, I'll use my New Jersey DEP days as a reference point. In the late 80s, maybe even like 1990, the areas of Jersey City, they were heavily contaminated with chromium. But, you know, for those of you that, you know, see Jersey City now and you look at that skyline, people wanted to live there. And so developers were addressing the contamination and building high-rise condos along the along the waterfront there so much that they referred to it i think they still refer to it as the gold coast mm-hmm. despite mm-hmm. the fact that chromium's it's a pretty serious contamination issue developers built that cost into their pro forma and back in the early 90s they were probably selling for a million dollars you know these condos so clearly there was a market And there was a way to get past any stigma on some brownfield sites. So that's kind of where it started, you know, at least in in my observation. It started with Jersey City, developers who wanted to move very quickly. They came to New Jersey DEP with respect to the cleanup. And we could not keep up as fast with our review of their documents as they would like us to have done. And we weren't used to that. You know, we're used to kind of slow and steady, you know, moving forward. That was sort of the beginning. So then you wanted to have projects that were a little bit more sustainable. So it wasn't enough that we were recycling industrial land. Now the buildings were a little more efficient with their HVAC and with their water, and with their design. So we get more into a high-performing building. From there, I see that then we start looking at a specific type of project. And can we do solar on brownfields and landfills? And again, a I think a great evolution of brownfield redevelopment. And I and I think we're we're continuing to see how can we move these brownfields forward in the renewable energy space, whether it's geothermal, whether it's solar, whether it's wind, wind turbines on land. So that's kind of how I've seen it evolve. But there's some things that I mm-hmm. I think we will we'll see, and one is the the evolution of of cleanup standards. So we acquire a site, you know, you start cleaning it up, and more toxicology information becomes available. New contaminants are identified as being or having risk to to humans or to the environment. So that's one area where I think we're going to continue to see more change. Another area is, and I have to do a lot of online data searches. So, and I have found that, you know, some states 
It's much more easy to access their online information as opposed to others. So I think, and especially with more flexible work schedules, perhaps your ability to go into a building and do a file review may not be what it as available as it has been. So I think we're going mm-hmm. to see more more data going online. I think we're going to see with all this influx of brownfield grant money from EPA, the sites that are being assessed, I think we'll see that perhaps they're not as badly contaminated as perhaps anticipated, or now you know what the extent of the contamination is and, you know, a future developer can deal with that risk. And then the last one, and maybe this is just wishful thinking on my part, is hopefully we see the liability scheme improved. There are some states where we, our company, and and other developers are treated like a company that put the contamination there. And that's got to change. So I think and I hope that we will see some change to the liability scheme that finally allows a developer that when they're done, they're done. And they don't have to worry about the regulators pursuing them for you know, something else going forward. So again, maybe it's wishful thinking, but I think it's something that we, that we will eventually see. No, that's great. And thank you so much for those insights. And that's all the time we have for today. So Colleen, I want to thank you so much for the conversation. I really appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, for our audience, thank you for listening as well. And please join us again soon for another episode. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast. And for more information and resources, visit our website at redevelopmentinstitute.org.